Welcome back to The Andrew Curtis Show and the beginning of a new special series. Um, if you have been listening for a while, you might have caught the Science of Happiness series that I did about a year ago now. And I've been thinking about something that would be a suitable follow-up. And so when I discovered the course that we're going to go through now um, and over the next four weeks, then I thought to myself, I have found it. So already you'll know that this series is based on the idea of learning how to learn. And by way of a little bit of background, this has been an incredibly fundamental skill that I have acquired. And seeing it laid out in a course like this gave me a way of sharing it with you because I believe that it's one of the most fundamental, it's made one of the most fundamental differences to my life. And in my work as well, outside of podcasting and such like, I work pretty well in the field of adult education. Um, I'm a training uh, facilitator for all sorts of subjects, could be communication, leadership, mindset, all those sorts of things. And it strikes me in those meetings, depending on who you're meeting with, that people have very, uh, what would I call it, sometimes very sad attitudes towards learning in certain circles. I don't know what your experience at school was like, or university. I find that a lot of people learnt what they had to, to get the jobs that they have now. And that's kind of the only role that education serves. And I find that a tragedy. There's stats that suggest people, once they've finished university, may not read another book from cover to cover for the rest of their lives. And it's something upwards of like 70%. And so why is that? Why is that? I'm also very privileged at the moment to have friends who are starting families and have newborns and very young children. And something that struck me is that if you look at a three-month-old baby, six-month-old, um, even a few years, are they bored and disinterested or are they wide-eyed and fascinated? It's not a trick question, right? They're wide-eyed and fascinated by anything, by sounds, colors, shapes, movement. Uh, you can tell them about almost anything and they will be on the edge of their seat. And their life is all about learning. It's all that they do. And how do we get to the point that by the time we are maybe 18, 19, 20, 25, something like that, that learning no longer holds that kind of magic for us anymore? We're often very cynical about it. Some people believe that they can't even do it very well. And already to that, I would challenge your ability because one of the most difficult things that we learn how to do is just to be able to move through the world and to communicate with one another. I mean, think about how long it takes to learn how to walk. And by that, I mean being able to walk and jump and skip and run. It takes years. Some people, you could argue, still haven't mastered it. But nevertheless, we find that we are capable. And talking is the same. Even to get to the point where a child is understandable enough to have a long-form conversation with you takes a number of years. But to really have a more in-depth conversation, equally I find I've been a student of that my whole life. And so coming back to this original idea then of, of what is it about learning that stops it being an enjoyable process? Well, I think one of the fundamentals is that we forget how much we are made to learn. I mean, life is a learning experience. If it is nothing else, life is a learning experience. Yet we have experiences through work, through family, whatever it might be. 
that can give us a negative association with learning. And so we avoid it. It's not uncommon to find people who have a narrow, I guess, box of expertise and fight to, for the right to stay within that box. And I think it's a tragedy. So that's just a long form way of me sharing what my motivation is for this particular course. And so allow me to go into a little bit more detail because you'll see with the links that I've included that you can do this course yourself at any time you like. Um, but it is through a website called Coursera. Uh, and uh, this particular course is one of the most popular online courses in the world, and you'll be pleased to know as well that it's a free course to do. Absolutely free course to do. And so the principles behind it are simply what I've just told you now. We want to understand how it is that we can learn more effectively. Um, and in fact, to complete my analogies, I suppose, and motivationing motivations behind this particular series... I thought of it recently like going to an art gallery because I don't know a lot about art. Uh, at the moment, I can look at a painting and tell you if I like it or not, but that's all there is to it. However, I have performed in musical circles um, with a, a jazz big band for about seven or eight years now, and music's been much more a part of my life up until now. And so because of that, I can listen to music and take a lot more from it than just the simple aesthetics of do I like this or do I not. I can appreciate different things about the style, um, the uh, the musicianship and you know how the harmonies are structured and all those sorts of things. So the point is that the more I've learned about something, the deeper I can appreciate it. And so I think that is true for our experience of life as well. I want to get as much enjoyment and appreciation of the world around me out of this life that I can possibly get. And so if I can learn about something, I can appreciate it more deeply. Um, and that goes for those more abstract concepts, but also I think for, for people as well. If I can learn more about what makes people tick, they become more interesting to me. They become more multidimensional. And so without further ado, let's get into some of the opening thoughts that are a part of this course. And again, by the way, the timeline for this is also very flexible. I'm not necessarily sure that's a good thing. Um, I've taken longer than the four weeks that it should take to complete this course. I think partly because you can easily do that and the course will let you reset your timelines. Um, but I share that with you because if you are someone who is pressed for time or isn't sure how easily that they can get through an online course, because it, it may sound intimidating to you, uh, you can take this at your own pace. And even if you were to take, say, three weeks to do the first week worth of lectures and, and short quizzes and things, um, that's not going to affect your ability to complete it. Um, actually, and on a, another note too, before I forget, the assessment within this is much more about helping you to revise and revisit the things that you have learned as opposed to trying to catch you out. So yes, there are simple kind of multi-choice questions and things like that that pop up, but they're not difficult. Uh, and they, if anything, again, help you to, what's the word, repeat and refresh um, the, the information that you would have covered. So the opening concept, um, we are first uh, introduced to Dr. Barbara Oakley, who interestingly enough was in New Zealand uh, earlier on in the month of May. So I found that quite uh, an interesting case of serendipity. But she was here to present around this idea of, of learning how to learn. And one of the things that she f begins with is the idea of the focused and diffused modes of thinking. 
Now, when we are at school or how we tend to approach any traditional topic, the focused mindset uh, or focused uh, headspace, focused mode, however you want to describe it, is the one that we're probably the most familiar with. And what it is, um, throughout the course, she uses the analogy of like a pinball machine. So imagine that inside your mind, uh, there are a whole bunch of bumpers, you know, and the ball pings up and then bounces around between the different bumpers. Within the focused mode, those bumpers are closer together. And so they bounce between connected thoughts um, very quickly. Uh, now, the illustration that she uses there is to say, when we look at a, look at a, you know, a complex problem or something like that, where we think very hard. What we tend to do is we access the available knowledge and information that we already have. And through that focused attention, that little, you know, pinball of, uh, of mental energy bounces between those bumpers. And what we're really looking to do when we are creating uh, a new thought, a new, uh, you know, learning something new, is to create a certain pattern within, you know, within, a, within our minds. This is unpacked a little bit further on, but the idea is that each new thought, each new behavior creates a certain neural pathway. You might have heard certain things along these lines before. And in fact, in the second week, this is covered a little more detail. So a bit of a spoiler there for you. But the idea is that, yeah, there is a certain neural pathway that is established. And the more often that pathway is retread, the stronger that pathway becomes. That is, that is the focused mode of the mind. But the one that I find that I've only heard a little about recently, and in fact, I have another book on a similar topic called Think Less, Learn More, is to talk about the, the power of the diffuse mode, um, the unfocused mode, you might call it as well. And if we return that idea of a pinball machine, what um, Dr. Oakley talks about is that you imagine now a pinball machine where the, the bumpers are much more widely spaced. And so, you know, the pinball can bounce in a lot more directions and make, you know, longer connections between different things. That is effectively what they're talking about when they say the, the diffused mode of thinking. And that is something often that occurs when we actually step away from a piece of source material and allow the mind a bit of space, a bit of time. You've probably heard about how cramming for a test is not particularly helpful. What I thought was really interesting about the illustration that Dr. Oakley uses was that it gives you a little bit more of a tangible idea of why that is. Because it's in those more diffused um, modes of thinking that more of our creativity is able to show up. We create a bit of space, create a bit of rest, and it helps us to more broadly network the new information that we have taken into our mind. So, this is only really covered as an introductory thought, and it's fleshed out a little bit more deeply later on. So for now, the key takeaway is just to be aware of these focused and diffused modes of thinking. Now, after this, strangely enough, is when within the course, they decide to actually introduce the, um, the course itself more fully. And so, as I say, we've already learned that uh, Dr. Barbara Oakley is one of the uh, lecturers that we're going to be hearing from. Uh, the other lecturer is uh, Terry Sanowski. And they take a little bit of time to explain the uh, the core structure and really just how the things you're about to discover about learning are grounded in neuroscience and also cognitive psychology. There's more detail that's in there, but say for the sake of time, I'll kind of skip through some of that stuff now. So if we're going now into more analogies of diffuse thinking, uh, one of the examples that's given, which is quite delightful, I think, is of Salvador Dali. 
So he was a surrealist painter, and you are probably aware of one of his works in particular that has paintings of clocks, and they're all kind of melted and strangely distorted. That was a Salvador Dali painting. Now, this guy was eccentric, to say the least. Very unusual chap. Uh, he had the classic... If you've ever seen a pantomime villain with a really strangely waxed-out, elongated moustache that's curled up at the edges, uh, that is actually what Dali looks like. It's quite hilarious. And he had things like a pet, uh, a pet ocelot. And I think he might have had even more bizarre pets too, but at, at right at the moment of me recording this, I can't remember what they are. I want to say hippopotamus, and that's possibly just because of how weird that guy was. But here's the thing. How did he access this kind of level of, of creativity? And for those of you who don't want to end up like Salvador Dali, another example that is given is of Thomas Edison, who is renowned to have been one of the greatest inventors of uh, you know the last 100 years or so. Possibly 200 years now, actually, isn't it? He, um, Barbara Oakley uses an example of how they were able to access this diffuse mode of thinking in that they would enter a very restful state. They would sit in a chair or something like that and just relax, enter a mode of unfocused thought. And in Dali's case, he would hold a set of keys loosely in his hand. In the case of Thomas Edison, he would hold some ball bearings in his hand. And anyway, they would get into the state of, of relaxation and just letting their mind go wherever it wants to go. Uh, a very non-controlled, you could say a non-judgmental mode of thinking. Just letting whatever comes in and out of the mind flow as naturally as it wants to. And the reason they held the keys or the ball bearings in their hand was that if they got to the point of being so relaxed that they would fall asleep, they would either drop the keys or drop the ball bearings and the noise would wake them back up. And... This allowed them to get into this very diffused and relaxed mode of thinking. And then they would tend to write down whatever it was that had come to mind within that place of diffused thinking. So this is a, an illustration of how this re relaxation helps us to access this diffused mode. And on a personal level, the reason I find this so impactful as well is that I feel that the ability to access a relaxed state is harder and harder for people, and particularly because they see it as either laziness or non-productive. There's a lot of things that are calling for our attention and calling for our doing, but by going from one crisis to another, we tend to stay in that focused mode of thinking. We don't come up with creative ways of looking at our lives or looking at what we're doing. And in fact, for me, I also think that's partly why we end up with things like midlife crises, crises <laughs> where we are hyper-focused for a very long time and then eventually our health fails and it puts us in a time where we have to rest, for want of a better term. And suddenly, out of that, we become aware of, actually, I'm very dissatisfied. Actually, I'm feeling very disconnected. I don't feel fulfilled, all this kind of stuff. So because we've been pushing it away for so long, these things come as a shock to us and people have something like a midlife crisis. Whereas if we were able to slow down more regularly, we could become more aware of these thoughts a lot earlier on and in fact experience greater health and well-being. And I do believe there's a strong connection with those um, two experiences, that ability to rest and experience that diffuse mode of thinking and greater physical health and well-being too. But that might be a topic for another day. So having understood that diffuse mode of thinking a little bit more, the course now develops into 
just what is learning in general? And one of the concepts that comes out that I illustrated a little bit earlier on is that learning is very much about patterns and pattern recognition. And so to observe a pattern and then even to create a pattern within our own mind when we're learning how to do something, um, you might find that once you've learned to tie your shoes, uh, you tie them the same way every time. Um, people's handwriting doesn't change in style, right? We learn a certain way to write and then it stays that way. When we're learning a sport, when we're learning anything, learning how to play the piano, learning a new concept in an academic field, we want to get an understanding of what the pattern is behind the information and then we're able to greater hold on to it. So the thought that's expanded upon in this particular section is that uh, our brains are the way they are to help us navigate complex environments and that also most of the thinking or mental energy that we expend happens in the unconscious mind which is another reason why the diffuse mode of thinking is so helpful. And again, think about it. If you had to really consciously think about even your drive to work and a lot of the things that you do each day, it would be particularly exhausting, right? Uh, they think as much as, you know, 85, 90% happens in your unconscious mind. In fact, I recently uh, revised this and discovered that apparently we have up to 50,000 thoughts per day. And that's the conservative estimate on that front. Um Another point that is brought out at this stage of the uh, of the course is to talk about the power of sleep. And so we're going to go into that in a little bit more as well. But sleep plays a much more powerful role in learning than you may be uh, allowing for. And I say that because sleep deprivation is something that is a very common experience. And people talk about not having the time for sleep. And it's ooh, staggeringly ironic when you look through this course material, to understand that that very action of not sleeping makes your brain so much less efficient that in many ways you don't have the time not to sleep. So we're going to unpack that a little bit more later on. But for now, that's the section on learning how to learn, talking about the an understanding of what happens in our unconscious mind and how our brains have evolved to help us make sense of complex environments. So... Having gone through some of this introductory information, the course now goes into a slightly more practical um, direction and talks about procrastination. And something that I found interesting here, as somebody who has procrastinated a lot on things, is that procrastination is linked to pain centers in the brain. So and in other words, when a person is looking to procrastinate, what they find is that the thinking a person is having about a particular task or whatever it is that they need to do, is linked in a similar way to a physically painful activity. So it makes sense in some ways that you would procrastinate because what your mind is trying to do is to protect you from pain. Now, the rejoinder to this is that what people have found is that although we might believe something we are about to do will be painful and difficult, it's a common phenomenon that once a person starts to do something, it's not as bad as you think. Now, we know this from all manner of different areas in our lives, right? Everything from going to the gym to reading something that we didn't want to have to read or replying to an email that we were trying to avoid or take just diving into something within our work that's been particularly challenging. As difficult as we think it might have been, once we start, it's not as bad as we thought. So at this particular point, uh, Barbara Oakley shares the Pomodoro method. You might have heard of this before, but uh, Pomodoro is... Italian for tomato. Why a tomato? I don't know. 
But she shares this method, named after a tomato, to say that this really is just a way of helping to focus your attention for short periods. And the Pomodoro method is based on 25 minute chunks of time and is a way of negotiating with yourself. And as a side note to this, you might have heard me talk about this a little bit in uh, other podcasts recently. The ability to negotiate with yourself and find a solution that you can be happy with within yourself is an incredible skill to learn, one that I'm only really learning to unpack in the last little while. So if you have a difficult thing to do, it's no good to say to yourself, all right, you're going to make yourself do that unpleasant thing all day long. Because the you in that moment will say, yeah, yeah, I'll make myself do it. But then the you 30 minutes, an hour, two hours later goes, this is not worth it. I don't care. I'm not going to do it any longer. So to to break the power of procrastination, Oakley suggests give yourself 25 minutes and say for 25 minutes, I'm going to be free from distraction. I'm going to signal to other people that I cannot be distracted. And then quite importantly, too, she says, think of a way to reward yourself afterwards. And that could be in any way you see fit, even if it is jumping on Instagram or something for a few moments or watching a YouTube video or something. The point is that you are finding a way to negotiate with yourself, to get yourself started on something, and then at the end of that time to reward yourself. So that's something that I've been looking to apply in a few different areas, even for the start of my day, because I'm not a natural planner either. And yet I find when I say, okay, well, look, I'm going to do this for X number of minutes, and then I might go looking for an article or or video on a topic that I'm also interested in as a way of rewarding myself, because I learn for fun now, Um, like a real freak. Actually, that was a a huge breakthrough for me years ago, realizing that I actually liked learning. It probably took me until I was about 25. Anyway, side note, moving on to the next part. And uh, what are some of the, why are some things harder to learn than others? Uh, This is unpacked in very much a summary form, but the key finding I wanted to share with you was about how abstract certain ideas are. So typically, people find things like math difficult, um, or at least harder than, say, reading. Uh, I know there are those that struggle with reading as well, but, you know, broadly speaking, we learn words more easily than we learn numbers. Uh, And the thought is that, say, if I was to take the word cow, for example, The word cow, I can show you a picture of a cow and you have a sense of, okay, this is related to a tangible thing. Whereas math, particularly at higher levels, becomes incredibly abstract and it's harder to connect it with something else. So therefore it's harder to learn. Think about algebra and that kind of stuff. I mean, you can show, you see it in kids' books, right? Where they're teaching numbers, they will show, you know, put down the number four and then they'll show you four of something. You go, oh, that's what four looks like. Okay, but what about cosine and sine and uh, Pythagoras and, uh, and pi and that kind of stuff? Those kind of concepts are a little more abstract. They are things that we have learnt to describe the nature of the world around us, but it's harder to point exactly to one thing and say that is a representative of what I'm talking about. So the point behind all this is to understand that because something is so abstract, the, the ability to connect it with something else, which if we go back to the beginning of this is a key part of learning, right? Creating a, a, a neural pathway around something can be more difficult. And so this is where the age-old wisdom of repetition does reemerge. Um, so repetition in and of itself, without the diffuse mode of thinking, can be a laborsome way to learn. 
But what this first section of learning how to learn talks about is that if you understand that you have a period of repetition on something, like I said, maybe 25 minutes, and then you give yourself a break, perhaps even go somewhere else, uh, change the location up and allow that more diffuse mode of thinking, allow yourself to be uh, distracted or take in the world around you for a period of time as well. You'd be surprised how much it allows those new thoughts, new new pathways in the in the mind to to settle, which also leads into now discussions around things like memory. We've got a couple more points to talk about in this episode before we wrap it up. So, memory and sleep are the last two things that I really want to cover with you. And so, memory itself talks about the difference between your short-term and long-term memory. And there was thinking for a long time that there were seven um, slots within your working memory. So in other words, people could only hold on to seven pieces of information, uh, new information at a time. Uh, but that has been revised down. So now it's only four. Uh, it's more widely believed that we actually have maybe four slots within working memory. So... This helps us understand how when we are taking on board new information, how important it is to chunk it down into smaller parts. And in fact, in the next week as well, we're going to look at the power of, of chunking and what that means. Um, but when we're looking to take something from our working memory into our long-term memory, which again is another way of understanding what we're doing when we're learning something, um, the power of repetition is reinforced in this part. And they talk about in particular spaced repetition is the best way to approach something, as opposed to, say, cramming, for example. So a simple example might be that you are better off repeating something, say, four times a day for five days than you are to do it 20 times in one day. Right? Suddenly, kind of seems obvious. Um, that's the same reason why, again, cramming for exams and things like that is less effective. You are better off to do less over a longer period of time than intensively do a huge amount in a short period of time. So that is how you help to get a complex idea or anything you're looking to learn from your short-term memory into your longer-term memory. And now on to sleep. And I've alluded to this a little bit earlier on, but being awake uh, apparently creates toxic products within your brain. Does that mean being awake is bad for you? You be the judge. Uh, the point about sleep, though, is to understand the role that it plays in refreshing the brain, basically, that it allows your mind to be cleansed of a lot of these toxic products that are created in your brain. Um, also, it helps to strengthen the connections that have been made by, you know, whatever you've been trying to learn through focused and diffuse learning earlier on in the day. And it also washes away a lot of the, um, what would you call it? I guess the stuff that's just not helpful, right? So the very act of sleeping helps to streamline the process, I suppose. It gets rid of the stuff that's not very helpful and helps to strengthen those things that are helpful. Now, of course, if you're missing out on sleep, your brain has less of an ability to cleanse out those toxic byproducts of thinking. I suppose similar to the way your muscles work with lactic acid, right? That with action, there are often um, more toxic elements that are created by the body as a byproduct. But if you allow for rest, uh, the body can cleanse those things out. All to say again that our lack of sleep in our current culture is affecting our health in even more powerful ways. And I know there's a really good Joe Rogan podcast on this particular topic as well, but I'd encourage you to look into some of this stuff because... We need to have some form of courage or to understand what it is that's causing us to sacrifice sleep in the name of so many 
other things. It's affecting our ability to have creative insight in our work that could make things easier. And I mean, my concern is that there would be long-term health um, risks of conducting life in that kind of a manner, not making room for sleep. So if you take nothing out for uh, nothing else from this, make sure you have a good sleep in on Saturday. Um, but it's again, it's better to try and get, um, you know, seven or eight hours sleep every night as opposed to getting, say, five hours, four hours sleep a night during the week and then sleeping for 12 hours on the weekends. Um, you're better to have a measured amount of consistent stress and rest than you are to have these things in these kind of spikes. So that's given you a bit of an overview of what learning how to learn is about. And I would encourage you to go through this yourself because life is learning. Life is learning. And if you know that you have the ability to learn a new concept, um, a new skill, and have the ability to approach those kind of things with confidence and knowing how your mind works, it takes a lot of the pressure off. And I'll finish with a little example from my own life as well in the last little while. Um, that's not so much academic, but musical. I mentioned I've performed with jazz big bands for about eight years now. Uh, very recently, I had the privilege of performing at the uh, National Jazz Festival in Tauranga. Now, what that meant for me was that I had to learn four new songs that were very complex four-part vocal harmonies. Um, thankfully, I didn't have to do all four parts, but I'm much more used to performing as just a solo vocalist. So on the one hand, I'm very good at that, but performing with a group of people to this level of complexity was completely new to me. And because of that, one of the things I found when I approached this was, how am I going to learn this stuff? And so in some ways, it was remarkable that I stumbled upon this course to remind me of these things as I was about to approach this challenge. What it really helped me to do was realize that if I just gave myself, say, 25 minutes to focus on the music, focus on different parts, break it down into different chunks. And again, this is something that's expanded on tomorrow, um, tomorrow, uh, in the next, in the next episode, uh, but break it down into different chunks, focus on it, and then just take a break. I can come back to it and be surprised how much has actually sunk in. And so that actually made it a lot easier for me. Otherwise I would have stressed at it and tried to hammer away and just keep hammering. The power of sleep, the power of rest, the power of the diffused mind, what struck me as hilarious after the gig was how readily the harmonies that I had to learn just would come back into my mind. Like it took at least another week and a bit before they actually left me alone. And it was remarkable because I wasn't trying at that point, but I was experiencing the benefit of diffused thinking and focused thinking. So this has been the first week of learning how to learn. Again, if you want to do this course, you can literally go to Coursera.org and I've included a link in the description, um, but it is C-O-U-R-S-E-R-A.org. If you just search for learning how to learn, it's literally, I think, the most popular course that they have on there. And it would be remarkable to hear what your learning journey has been. But there will be another three episodes along this. I'd love to hear your thoughts and feedback. You can always send it through to me to uh, and the Andrew Curtis Show at gmail.com or just head to facebook.com slash the Andrew Curtis Show. Maybe leave a comment there. Thanks once again for listening. We'll be back with week two very soon. Yeah.